0: When I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me. Mark, I pour out my soul. It is an expression signifying that in prayer there goeth the very life and strength to God. As in another place, trust in Him at all times, ye people. Pour out your hearts before Him. This is the prayer to which the promise is made for the delivering of a poor creature out of thraldom. This showeth also the excellency of the spirit of prayer. It is the great God to which it retires. When shall I come and appear before God? And it argueth that the soul that thus prayeth indeed Seize an emptiness in all things under heaven, that in God alone there is rest and satisfaction for the soul. In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Let me never be put to confusion. Deliver me in thy righteousness, and cause me to escape. Incline thine ear to me, and save me. Be thou my strong habitation whereunto I may continually resort, for thou art my rock and my fortress. Many, in a wording way, speak of God. But right prayers make God his hope stay and all. Right prayers see nothing substantial and worth the looking after but God. Number four. It is a sincere, sensible, affectionate pouring out of the heart to God through Christ. This through Christ must needs be added, or else it is to be questioned whether it be prayer, though in appearance it be never so imminent and eloquent. Christ is the way through whom the soul hath admittance to God, and without whom it is impossible that so much as one desire should come into the ears of the Lord of hosts. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. John fourteen fourteen. This was Daniel's way in praying for the people of God. He did it in the name of Christ. Now therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications, and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. Daniel 9.17 But now it is not everyone that maketh mention of Christ's name in prayer that doth indeed and in truth effectually pray to God. This coming to God through Christ is the hardest part that is found in prayer. A man may more easily be sensible of his works, aye, and sincerely to desire mercy and yet not be able to come to God by Christ. The man that comes to God by Christ must first have the knowledge of Him. Lord, saith Moses, show me thy way that I may know thee. This Christ none but the Father can reveal. And to come through Christ is for the soul to be enabled of God to shroud itself under the shadow of the Lord Jesus as a man shroudeth himself under a thing for safeguard. Hence it is that David so often terms Christ his shield, buckler, fortress, rock of defense, and so forth, not only because by him he overcame his enemies, but because through him he found favor with God the Father. The man, then, that comes to God through Christ must have faith by which he puts on Christ and in him appears before God. Now he that hath faith is joined to Christ and made a member of him. And therefore, he, as a member of Christ, comes to God so that God looks on that man as a member of Christ's body, united to him by election and conversion. So that now he comes to God in Christ's merits, in his blood, righteousness, victory, intercession, and so stands before him, accepted in the Beloved. Number five. Prayer is a pouring out of the heart to God through Christ by the strength of the Spirit. For these things do so depend one upon another that it is impossible that it should be prayer without there be a joint concurrence of them. For though it be never so famous yet, without these things it is only such prayer as is rejected of God. For without a sincere, sensible, affectionate pouring out of the heart to God, it is but lip labor, and if it be not through Christ, it falleth far short of ever sounding well in the ears of God. So also, if it be not in the strength and assistance of the Spirit, it is not possible that it should be according to the will of God, But I shall speak more to this under the second head, and therefore in the meantime merely say that that which is not petitioned through the teaching and assistance of the Spirit, it is not possible that it should be according to the will of God. Number six, prayer is a pouring out of the heart to God through Christ in the strength of the Spirit for such things as God hath promised. Prayer must be within the compass of God's Word. It is blasphemy, or at best, vain babbling, when the petition is beside the book. David, therefore, in his prayers kept his eye on the Word of God. My soul cleaveth to the dust, quicken me according to thy word. My soul melteth for heaviness, strengthen me according to thy word. Remember Thy word unto Thy servant on which Thou hast caused me to hope. Psalm 119. Indeed, the Holy Spirit doth not immediately quicken and stir up the heart of the Christian without, but by, in, and through the word. By bringing that to the heart and by opening of that whereby the man is provoked to go... To the Lord and to tell him how it is with him and also to argue and supplicate according to the word. Thus it was with Daniel, that mighty prophet of the Lord, he, understanding by the scriptures that the captivity of Israel was near at hand, made his prayer to God. I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish seventy years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth. Daniel 9, 2 and 3. So that I say, As the Spirit is the helper and governor of the soul when it prayeth according to the will of God, so he guideth by and according to the word of God and his promise. Hence it is that our Lord Jesus Christ himself did make a stop, although his life lay at stake for it. I could now pray to my Father, and he should give me more than twelve legions of angels, But how then should the Scripture be fulfilled, that thus it must be? As one should say, were there but a word for it in Scripture, I should soon be out of the hands of mine enemies, I should be helped by angels. But the Scripture will not warrant this kind of praying, for that saith otherwise. The Spirit by the word directs as well in the manner as in the matter of praying. Number seven. Prayer must be with submission in faith to the will of God. It is required of us that we say, Thy will be done as Christ hath taught. Therefore the people of the Lord in all humility are to lay themselves and their prayers and all that they have at the foot of their God, to be disposed of by Him, as He in His heavenly wisdom seeth best. Yet not doubting, but God will answer the desire of His people that way, which shall be most for His glory and their advantage. When the saints, therefore, do pray with submission to the will of God, it doth not argue that they are to doubt or question God's love and kindness to them. But because they are at all times not so wise, but that sometimes Satan may get advantage by tempting them to pray for that which, if they had it, would neither prove to God's glory nor His people's good. Yet this is the confidence we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. And if we know that He heareth us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petition that we ask Him, that is, if we ask in the spirit of grace and supplication. John Bunyan, 1660. To be continued, God willing, in the April studies. Study number six. THE CURE FOR DESPONDENCY Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted in me? Psalm forty-two, five. When the psalmist gave utterance to these words, his spirit was dejected and his heart was heavy within him. In the checkered career of David, There was not a little which was calculated to sadden and depress. The cruel persecutions of Saul who hunted him as a partridge upon the mountains, the treachery of his trusted friend Ahithophel, the perfidy of Absalom and the remembrance of his own sins were enough to overwhelm the stoutest. And David was a man of like passions with us. He was not always upon the mountain top of joy, but sometimes spent seasons in the slough of despond and the gorge of gloom. But David did not give way to despair nor succumb to his sorrows. He did not lie down like a stricken beast and do naught but fill the air with his howlings. No, he acted like a rational creature and like a man, looked his troubles squarely in the face. But he did more. He made diligent inquiry. He challenged himself. He sought to discover the cause of his despondency. He asked, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? He desired to know the reason for such depression. This is often the first step toward recovery from dejection of spirit. Repining and murmuring get us nowhere. Fretting and wringing our hands bring no relief, either temporally or spiritually. There needs to be self-interrogation, self-examination, self-condemnation. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? We need to seriously take ourselves to task. We need to fearlessly face a few plain questions. What is the good of giving way to despair? What possible gain can it bring me? To sit and sulk is not redeeming the time. Ephesians 5.16 To mope and mourn will not mend matters. Then, Let each despondent one call his soul to account and inquire what adequate cause could be assigned for peevishness and fretting. Thomas Scott said, We may have great cause to mourn for sin and to pray against prevailing impiety, but our great dejection, even under the severest outward afflictions or inward trials, springs from unbelief. And a rebellious will. We should therefore strive and pray against it. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Cannot you discover the real answer without asking counsel from others? Is it not true that deep down in your heart you already know or at least suspect the root of your present trouble? Are you cast down because of distressing circumstances which your own folly has brought you into? Then acknowledge with the psalmist, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right, and thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. Psalm 119.75 Is it because of some sin, some course of self-will, some sowing to the flesh, that You are now of the flesh reaping corruption. Then confess the same to God and plead the promise found in Proverbs 28.13. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Or are you grieved because providence has not smiled upon you so sweetly as it has on some of your neighbors. Then heed that injunction, Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. Psalm 37.1 Perhaps the cases suggested do not exactly fit that of some of our hearers. Not a few may say, My soul is cast down and my heart is heavy, because my finances are at so low an ebb, and the outlook is so dark. That is indeed a painful trial, and one which mere nature often sinks under. But, dear friend, there is a cure for despondency even when so occasioned. He who declares the cattle upon a thousand hills are mine still lives and reigns. Cannot he who fed two million Israelites in the wilderness for forty years minister to you and your family? Cannot he who sustained Elijah in the time of famine keep you from starving? If God so clothe the grass of the field which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Matthew 6.30 Returning to our opening text, let us observe how that David not only succumbed not to his sorrows, interrogated his soul and rebuked his unbelief, but he also preached to himself, Hope thou in God. Ah, that is what the despondent needs to do. Nothing else will bring real relief to the heart. The immediate outlook may be dark, but the divine promises are bright. The creature may fail you, but the Creator will not if you truly put your trust in Him. The world may be at its wit's end, but the Christian needs not be so. There is one who is a very present help in trouble. Psalm 42.1, and he never deserts those who really make him their refuge. The writer has proved this many, many a time, and so may the hearer. The fact is that present conditions afford a grand opportunity for learning the sufficiency of divine grace. Faith cannot be exercised when everything needed is at hand to sight. Hope thou in God, in His mercy. You have sinned, sinned grievously in the past, and now you are receiving your just deserts. True, but if you will penitently confess your sins, there is abundant mercy with the Lord to blot them all out. Isaiah 55, 7 In His power. Every door may be shut against you, every channel of help be closed fast, but nothing is too hard for the Almighty in His faithfulness. Men may have deceived you, broken their promises, and now desert you in the hour of need, but he who cannot lie is to be depended upon, Oh, doubt not his promises. In His love, having loved His own which were in the world, He loved them unto the end. John 13, 1. For I shall yet praise Him for the help of His countenance. Such is ever the blessed assurance of those who truly hope in God. They know that many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all Psalm thirty four nineteen. God has told them that weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning, Psalm thirty five. So Christian hearer, when the fiery trial has done its work and your bonds are burned off Daniel three twenty five, you will thank him for the trials which are now so unpleasant. Then, hopefully, anticipate the future. Count upon God, and He will not fail you. Arthur Pink. Note well, let each Christian hearer who is not now passing through deep waters join with the writer in fervent prayer to God that He will graciously sanctify the present distress unto the spiritual good of his own people and mercifully supply their temporal needs study number 7 sound the alarm dear brother pink we are members of a baptist church and our pastor is a very good preacher sound and preaches all the truth, including God's sovereignty in salvation. The Sunday school is much given to social activities, such as the church sponsoring baseball team, and many social gatherings in the church with much to eat, and Sunday school drives for membership. I was an elder and refused to act again on the ground that it is unscriptural, to indulge in such things. I also had a class in Sunday school, but on account of so much social doings was led to resign same. I do not wish to grieve the Holy Spirit and want to know from a scriptural standpoint whether or not I have taken the right stand. I feel that the church house was dedicated to our Lord And do not think that eating and social gatherings have any place there. The pastor justifies his position by, in eating and drinking, do all to the glory of God. This letter is a very recent one, and while we continue to receive such inquiries, we believe it to be our God-appointed duty to go on sounding the alarm. We replied to this brother by saying, We were thankful to learn he had resigned from the deaconate and given up his class in the Sunday school and urged him to have his name taken off the church register and cease from attending its services, pressing upon him such scriptures as Exodus 23.2, Revelation 18.4, and so forth. We told him, that his pastor would be far less dangerous if he ceased preaching the truth and instead spent his time in the pulpit by reading from Mark Twain. If such pastors would only put off their religious masks, honest souls would know where to place them. But alas, they will not. Such wolves will continue to masquerade in sheep's clothing. But how terribly Satan must have have succeeded in pulling the wool over people's eyes when merely because the pastor preaches orthodox sermons they will retain their membership in churches? Question mark, where the Lord of glory is so blatantly insulted. Think of a pastor daring to justify such heathenish practices as turning a building set apart for divine worship into a restaurant and show house by quoting 1 Corinthians 10.31. What a proof that he is a blind leader of the blind. No man indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God would so wickedly pervert his word. One verse of scripture is quite sufficient to expose the false application made of 1 Corinthians 10.31, namely, what Have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. 1 Corinthians 11.22 Our object in referring to this case is to warn, admonish, and entreat others who are yet members of such churches to immediately sever all connection with them. We doubt not that many of the hearers of this magazine are yet found in similar associations as the mentioned brother. To such we would faithfully and lovingly point out you are dishonoring Christ. You are disobeying the plain commandments of God. You are endangering your own soul. There is no third alternative. To have fellowship with anything which does not honor Christ must be to dishonor Him. To deliberately ignore such a plain word as having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. 2 Timothy 3.5, three five is to disobey God. To partake of the sins of such a worldly church is to court a receiving of her plagues from God. Revelation eighteen four. So many will reply by saying, But what are we to do? Other churches are the same if we leave the one where we now are and unite with another, we shall find it no better. True, that is almost universally the case today. Things are far, far worse than many real Christians will acknowledge. Many writers and preachers imagine they are performing a helpful service by gathering data to show that the world is getting worse and worse, that all forms of crime are on the increase that communism is undermining the foundations of government, and that the masses are seething with discontent. But they would spend their strength to much better effect if they strove to set before their people a personal example of self-denial and practical godliness and sought to purge their churches of worldly attractions and unregenerate members. If an ungrieved spirit were again at work in the churches, conditions would soon improve in the world. It is not that we are urging our hearers to come out from imperfect churches. There has never been a perfect church on this earth, and never will be. But there is a vast difference between an imperfect church and a hypocritical and counterfeit church. There is a vast difference between a little company of real saints who, though full of infirmities and failures, are nevertheless desirous of pleasing the Lord in all things, and who are prayerfully striving so to do, and a large number of thinly veneered worldlings where the only difference between them and honest worldlings is that the former cloak their self-pleasing and fleshly lives under a profession of the holy name of Christ, while the latter sail under their true colors. There is a vast difference between a church which pretends to stand for the fundamentals of the Christian faith and one which acknowledges, walks in, the truth which is after godliness. Titus 1.1 Not a few are now seeking to shelter behind the state of the Corinthian church when it is pointed out that God's word requires His people to separate themselves from all that is openly dishonoring to Him, to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, Ephesians 5.11. Some will reply, look at the sad state the Corinthian church was in. Yet the apostle did not exhort the real Christians there to forsake it. Our first reply is: We are making an evil use of God's word when we seek to pit one portion of it against another. Second Corinthians six, fourteen, seventeen, and Second Timothy three, five, and so forth must not be negatived by reasonings. But secondly let it be very carefully observed and duly noted that the Corinthian church heeded the apostles' admonitions. It was because of its condition that he addressed to them the first epistle. The response which they made to it is plainly stated in 2 Corinthians 7, 8-12. From a church which heeds the admonitions of God's servants, Corrects what is wrong, and sorrows with a godly repentance. We counsel none to depart. The fact is that those who are turning a deaf ear today unto such commands as Acts 2.40, 1 Timothy six five, and Hebrews thirteen thirteen, and seek to excuse their disobedience by the state of the Corinthian church, belong to churches question mark, entirely different from that New Testament assembly. What resemblance is there between a semi-worldly and semi-religious organization and that Corinthian church which maintained a godly discipline? Second Corinthians 2, 6-10. Does any real Christian suppose that if the Apostle Paul were on earth today, he would write to these modern clubs? Which call themselves Christian churches, for as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. Second Corinthians three three. Or finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. 2 Corinthians thirteen eleven. In order to avoid all ambiguity, let us define the character of those churches, question mark, from which all who love the Lord Jesus in sincerity should come out. We will not attempt to give a full list but mention only the more glaring cases. First, where a majority of the members are obviously unregenerate, 2 Timothy 3.5, Scripture forbids us being unequally yoked together, 2 Corinthians 6.14, and throws upon us the responsibility of individually deciding by means of the word where such would be the case. Second, where any of the fundamentals of the faith are repudiated in the pulpit. Romans 6.17 It is an awful sin for any Christian to support error. Third, where Christ is dishonored and His Spirit quenched by employing worldly means to attract and hold worldly people. John 17.16 Nothing is more dishonoring to our Lord than linking His holy name with that which He hates. Fourth, where a scriptural discipline is not being maintained, it is no place for a child of God to be in where little or no attempt is made to deal with members whose daily walk is manifestly a libel upon the cause of Christ. Perhaps someone may ask, But am I not forbidden to set up myself as a judge of other people? Certainly you are so forbidden. I am first to judge myself unsparingly by the word. 1 Corinthians 11.31 Confessing to God every deviation from it and seeking grace to conform all the details of my life to its holy precepts. Then, and not till then, it is my privilege and duty to measure everything I come into contact with by that same unerring word, and if I am truly in subjection to it, it will not be at all difficult for me to discover all that is opposed to it. Certainly, It is not God's will that any of His children should be deceived and imposed upon by hypocrites, nor need they be. Certainly He does not wish me to love as brethren and sisters in Christ those who are the children of the devil. Yet I must do so if I cannot distinguish one from the other. Suppose. I am a young Christian about to be engaged to a girl that is an out-and-out worldling and someone calls my attention to 2 Corinthians 6.14. If I answered by saying, oh, but I must not judge her, would I not be reducing that verse to a meaningless absurdity? Or suppose I am contemplating going into a business partnership with a man who goes to church every Sunday, but to movies, dances, and card parties every other night of the week. And a faithful servant of God reminds me of Second Corinthians 6.14. If I answered, But I have no right to judge him, would I not be guilty of wicked equivocation? Certainly I would then why brand me as a Pharisee and denounce me as guilty of exercising an holier-than-thou spirit if I act on the same principle in connection with the church yoke? I must measure professing Christians by the word if I am to obey. Second Timothy 3, five. And what remains for us to add but this? Beloved brethren and sisters in Christ, cry unto God that He will so deepen His work of grace in your hearts that the honor and glory of His Son shall regulate you in all things. Ask Him for grace to separate from all that dishonors Him. You will never regret it. The Lord has promised them that honor me I will honor 1 Samuel 2.30. When you have obeyed 2 Corinthians 6.17 and Hebrews 13.13, God will confirm your decision. As a sister in New Zealand has just written, I did not know how dreadful things were in the church until I came out. Arthur Pink